Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning uh, thanking you for the silence that we have available here, that we can spend time praying for our friends, praying for each other, and praying for ourselves. Lord, uh, we often lose uh, sympathy for others around us, and we uh, forget to pray for them. And this morning, I ask that you would help us to regain the meaning of sympathy in our lives. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you uh, don't know me, so for those of you that do not know me, I want to begin by telling you a little bit about my name. You probably saw the name Cosmin Ritivoyu, and you thought, I can't pronounce that, so I'm not even going to worry about what exactly his name is. My name is actually Romanian, and uh, my first name comes from the word cosmos, meaning outer space. And then my parents decided to give me a flower middle name. They named me Iris. And uh, that was because I had two older sisters. And the oldest sister, she um, got a middle name that was a flower. And then the middle sister got a middle name that was a flower. So when I was born, they wanted to keep the tradition going. So they decided they'll go with the most masculine sounding flower in Romanian, which is Iris. And then uh, my last name, Ritivoyu. They don't really know what it means, but the closest thing that they could get to is beating stick. <laughs> so I guess that would mean that I'm like outer space flower beating stick. <laughs> Your schedule says that I'm going to be talking about the outer court. But uh, if I could put a title on my talk this morning, it would be better than genius, better than genius. When we're thinking about the outer court, what is the main thing that happened in the outer court? What was the main focus of the outer court? Sacrifice. And what did the sacrifice point to? Jesus' sacrifice. Now, I want to talk about what has caused us to lose a lot of the meaning of Jesus' sacrifice. In our uh, culture today, wisdom is very prized, and especially genius. And maybe I could put it in a different way and say it's actually information that is really, really prized. When you think about genius, there's two different types of genius. One type of genius is the type of person that is really, really good at one thing. They're just an expert at that one field, and they can really pinpoint that one field. And then on the other end, you have people that are good at everything. They know a little bit about everything, or they know a lot about everything. And those people are called polymaths. The dictionary calls that a person of encyclopedic learning. That means you could ask them a question about anything, and they know. Uh, an example of this would be Leonardo da Vinci. He was really good at many, many different things. It seems like today we all need to be polymaths. And the reason I say this is because we're bombarded with so much information. We're surrounded with so much information that in order to be able to discern and to put every piece of information that we receive into its right place, it seems like we all need to be polymaths. In fact, 
the way that our culture is going, it seems like we look to information to solve all of our problems. If we could just have enough information, if it could just come to us quickly enough, if we could just have better technology, then maybe we could solve our problems. But since the dawn of all this new technology and since we started getting information quickly, a lot of problems still remain. Take, for example, poverty. Do we still have poverty in the world? Um, and yet, uh, we can download a video of a starving child on YouTube. We could, put, uh, we could watch uh, a video of starving children in Africa on our high-definition uh, flat-panel TV, hear them crying as they die in our surround sound, and perhaps if we follow this line of reasoning, we would need a hologram of a dying child in our living room floor before we did anything about it. But that's not the only thing that comes in through all this technology. Isn't that right? Isn't there a lot of other different information that we get? I want to read the definition of confuse. The verb of confused is to make indistinct, blur, to mix indiscriminately, to jumble, to fail to differentiate from an often similar or related other. The adjective of confused, indistinguishable, being disordered or mixed up. So the side effect of all the technology that we have received is that uh, we not only hear news of disasters, but we also get other stuff. We've been overflowed with information about anything and everything. Um, an example of this. I was looking at the news the other day, and I was thinking, why do we really need to know that Kobe Bryant jumped over a swimming pool full of snakes? I mean, is that really something that's related to our lives? How is that going to help us today? What are we going to do because we know that? And I was looking at a, a Yahoo News page a few weeks ago, and I saw the headline. There was a picture of an American Idol, and the headline was, American Idol breaks the record for the most uh, hits in the digital songs chart. I believe it was like 17 hits. And then four lines later, no picture, just headlines, four lines later, two commuter trains collide in Boston. Now what happens when you mix the serious and the trivial? When you mix the serious with the trivial, you trivialize the serious. All of a sudden, it's not as important anymore. So what are we supposed to do? What has God offered us that is better than the genius of this world? You know, God was kind of going through the same thing in um, Samuel's time. And uh, I want to first talk about how the loss of meaning leads to a loss of sympathy. This is the first point that I want to make. The loss of meaning leads to a loss of sympathy. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And I want to first look at how meaning is lost. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I'll begin reading in verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, 
but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In this conference, we're looking for something better. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he, has, he also has rejected you from being king. So here's Saul, and he's um, supposed to destroy the Amalekites, and he, he destroys them, but he keeps some of the things and says, oh, I'm going to sacrifice these things to the Lord. And I want to read a quote um, from Patriarchs and Prophets. The messenger to the remnant explains this passage, and she says something very interesting that I want you to think about in your own lives. To obey is better than sacrifice. The sacrificial offerings were in themselves of no value in the sight of God. They were designed to express on the part of the offerer penitence for sin and faith in Christ and to pledge future obedience to the law of God. But without penitence, faith, and an obedient heart, the offerings were worthless. When, in direct violation of God's commands, Saul proposed to present a sacrifice of that which, listen to this line, God had devoted to destruction. Open contempt was shown for, divine, for the divine authority. The service would have been an insult to heaven. Yet with the sin of Saul and its results before us, how many are pursuing a similar course? While they refuse to believe and obey some requirement of the Lord, they persevere in offering up to God their formal services of religion. There is no response of the Spirit of God to such service. No matter how zealous men may be in their observance of religious ceremonies, the Lord cannot accept them if they persist in willful violation of one of His commands. Now I want you to think about, is there something in your life, is there something in my life, that God has devoted to destruction? Perhaps it is music, perhaps it is uh, a job that you're hanging on to, a hobby, and you're trying to worship God with it. Here, Lord, here's something that you don't want, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. This is not what you asked for. Now notice the next step. Here comes Saul, and he doesn't want to let go. He doesn't want to let go of his sin. He doesn't, he doesn't want to have true repentance. And so he gives a kind of a false, whiny repentance. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And if he would have just stopped there, then perhaps we could say, oh, maybe he's sincere. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So you can kind of see that he's not really repenting because he's blaming the people. It's because of them. You know, I had to do what they wanted. So the Lord turns away from Saul. The kingdom is taken from him. In the very next chapter, David is anointed as the new king. And look at how 
this loss of meaning, Saul's misunderstanding of what it meant to sacrifice, his misunderstanding of what Jesus would do, look what it led to later on while he's chasing David. Look at how it affected his sympathy. Turn with me to chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. I think we should begin um, reading in verse 19. 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 19. So this is uh, David running away. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hachilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. So uh, they're, they're uh, kind of ratting him out. They're saying, okay, this is where David is hiding. We know he's hiding here, near here. We're going to give him to you if you come down here. And look at how distorted Saul's mind has become. The next verse, verse 21. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. This is his understanding of sympathy. Oh, uh, oh I understand. You're trying to kill this, little, this, this new king. Oh, I'm really, I, I understand how you feel. I'll help you kill him. This is what his idea of compassion had become. When we lose the meaning of a sacrificial service, when we lose the meaning of what Christ has done, we lose sympathy as well. And there was no repentance for it to save the meaning. Well, we looked at what Samuel was sa said, and he, he said, to obey is better than to sacrifice, but to obey what? Well, Saul had a specific case, but what is it in general that God wants us to obey? We're looking at the idea of how sacrifice is related to sympathy. Turn with me to Micah chapter 6. Micah is after Jonah. Before Nahum. Micah chapter 6, this is a well-known passage, but it, maybe you could look at the verses before it to see the context. Micah chapter 6, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And verse 8 is the answer. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Can you, can you do justly without sympathy? Can you do justly... Can you... Can you sympathize and not have mercy? You have to, these things are all connected. You have to be able to sympathize in order to have mercy. So I want to ask this. 
if there is something that God has devoted to destruction, and we're trying to worship God with it, and then the thing will be destroyed, what is the alternative? Something that will not be destroyed. And these are, these are the relationships that God wants us to build. Sympathetic relationships that will not be destroyed. That's what you offer up to God. I want to go back to how this is related to our culture today. We watch television. Hopefully none, no one here does. But a lot of us watch television. And uh, there was a book written called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. He's, he's a scholar, non-Adventist. Uh, he's actually passed away now. I highly recommend this book if you can get it. And he explains how this bombardment of information can really lead to us being desensitized. This is what he says. There is no murder so brutal, no earthquake so devastating, no political blunder so costly, For that matter, no ball score so tantalizing or weather report so threatening that it cannot be erased from our minds by a newscaster saying, Now this. The newscaster means that you have thought long enough on the previous matter, approximately 45 seconds, that you must not be morbidly preoccupied with it, let us say for 90 seconds, and that you must now give your attention to another fragment of news or a commercial. Do you see how this bombardment of information, loss of meaning, leads to loss of sympathy? But praise God, He has something better. Better than genius. It is repentance that restores sympathy. Repentance restores sympathy. Repentance, first of all, restores meaning. Look at one of the most famous uh, cases of repentance, Psalms chapter 51. David is repenting of his sin. And he realizes in his repentance the true meaning of the sacrifice that God requires. Psalms 51, and I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. Psalms chapter 51, verses 16 and 17. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. I came up with a title for this talk from a quote from This Day with God, page 187. And I think it's such a powerful quote. It's just one sentence. It says, Learning is not essential. Genius is not necessary. Eloquence may be lacking. But the prayer of the lowly and contrite heart, God hears. And when He hears, No obstacles on earth can hinder. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 1. It also has a similar uh, meaning in Isaiah chapter 1. 
I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 1. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Okay, now, what is it that God calls good? Think about this in terms of sympathy. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. This is true meaning. Come now and let us reason together. In the midst of a culture full of confusion, God wants us to understand. He wants us to reason. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Without repentance, we hang on to our sin and we create our own reality. Um, there's nothing wrong with rave music. It's okay to serve God with my own carnal hobbies. I can be God's hip-hop artist. I can be God's swimsuit model. I can be God's race car driver. I can be God's fill-in-the-blank. Do you see that, you're, that it's creating a reality that's not really there? When we repent, that's when we begin to regain meaning because that's true reality. We're saying, we've been doing it wrong. Repentance as I was saying before, also leads back to sympathy. Look with me at Jesus' own statement in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13. Jesus actually commands people who have lost the meaning of true service. He gives them a command in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13. It says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When we look at Jesus, he is the ultimate example of sympathy. I want to read this passage from uh, Welfare Ministry, page 36. It says, true sympathy between man and his fellow man is to be the sign distinguishing those who love and fear God from those who are unmindful of his law. How great the sympathy that Christ expressed in coming to this world to give his life a sacrifice for a dying world. His religion led to the doing of genuine medical missionary work. Now there's a note in here that says, the reader should bear in mind that the term medical missionary work, as often employed by Mrs. White, stretched far beyond the bounds of professional medical service to embody all acts of mercy and disinterested kindness. 
He was a healing power. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. And he, he said, this is the test that the great author of truth used to distinguish between true religion and false. How do we know in this world of confusion what is true? Sympathy, mercy. But how is it that we can get that sympathy? How is this related to repentance? The answer is found in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, once again looking at Jesus as our example. Hebrews chapter 5, and I'm going to read verse 2. It says, He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Why? How do we do it? Since he himself is also subject to weakness. It is when we let our weaknesses draw us closer to other people that we can have true sympathy. Now, now think about this. You, you cannot have true sympathy if you haven't repented. Because you'll say, there's nothing wrong with me. I haven't sinned. If you haven't sinned, how can you draw close to somebody else that's struggling? You can't. There, you're going to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Oh, it's too bad that you're struggling with this sin. Uh, it's too bad that you can't get over this sin. Um, I can't really relate because I don't have that problem. You might both, you and the other person, you might both ignore the reality and be in your own little world where God accepts your lifestyle. Now, this is very popular in our culture today. It's called existentialism. And it really isolates us. It states that what's true for me is not true for you. Do you realize how much this isolates us from each other? We can believe whatever we want to believe, but if it's not reality, we're just isolating ourselves to someone else's reality, to our own reality. It's like, um, okay, your reality is over here, my reality is over here, so there's no, you know, there's no interaction because we completely believe different things. It is for this reason that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. It's because He knows that weak, erring human beings can draw close to other weak, erring human beings. I'm going to close by reading this quote from The Desire of Ages, page 297. It says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the exceeding greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. This is why the preaching of the gospel was committed to erring men rather than to angels. It is manifest that the power which works through the weakness of humanity is the power of God. And thus we are encouraged to believe that the power which can help others, as weak as ourselves, can help us. And those who are themselves compassed with infirmity should be able to have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. Hebrews 5.2 Having been in peril themselves, they are acquainted with the dangers and difficulties of the way. And for this reason are called to reach out for others in like peril. There are souls perplexed with doubt, burdened with infirmities, weak in faith and unable to grasp the unseen. But a friend whom they can see 
coming to them in Christ's stead can be a connecting link to fasten their trembling faith upon Christ. I'd like us to sing a song that talks about many different metaphors in life. The song is as water to the thirsty. And I want you to think about how God wants us to have meaning in our lives. Meaning in every single thing that we see and do. And how we should always be relating it to the ultimate reality of what God has done for us in His sacrifice. The number is 460 as water to the thirsty. put aside the false genius of this world, the confusion of our culture, and begin meaningful, sympathetic relationships. Please raise your hands. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not a God of confusion, that you are a God that offers something better than the genius of this world. And Lord, we ask that we would have true repentance, that we would have true meaning in our lives, and that ultimately it would lead to sympathy for others. Lord, we recognize that we have been so cold and we have often been so distant from other people. And we just ask that you would bind our hearts together, help us to allow ourselves to draw close to each other through our weaknesses, that we might bring others to Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. <laughs> 